It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome our first guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have uh, Marion Crow. She is the Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association. And uh, they have been uh, holding some online town hall uh, 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 for the COVID-19 situation, uh, starting back in, uh, I think, March, uh, Marion. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct, David. And thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here, and we're glad you could join us. I'm sure someone in your line of work is very busy. And, you know, before we get into talking a little bit about uh, what you've been doing, uh, let's talk a little bit about the organization itself. Um, You've been busy with this organization for quite some time. In fact, from the very beginning, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. It's such an honor and a humbling privilege to lead the First Nations Health Managers Association uh, since the beginning as the founding executive director and now as the CEO. Uh, We started 10 years ago. Our celebration date would have been uh, March 24th for incorporation, Um, but we were excited to share all of our successes on our virtual town halls regardless. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit about why the First Nations Health Managers Association came about? I know there was some discussion with AFN uh, during the, uh, the first part of this and, and, and with other First Nations and Inuit communities and health organizations as well and Métis. Yes, absolutely. I mean, discussions around supporting health managers and health directors dated back to the 2005 Kelowna Accord. Mm. Um, Out of that stemmed a working group that was co-chaired by the First Nations and Inuit Health Branch and AFN that looked at how do we look at competencies for health directors and health managers, and then provide a network of supports for them as well. Uh, Based on that work, FNHMA was born. Uh, We have a set of 10 core competencies that uh, health directors aspire to and exemplify in their work and dedication to our nation's health and wellness. We have a certification program at FNHMA that is relevant to the work and how we practice in our nations. And uh, we offer professional development and a networking opportunity through our national conference that happens every year as well. Right. Now, uh, and if uh, people go to the uh, website, uh, they can find out all of this. It's nicely laid out. I had a look at it. Uh, Very easy to uh, sort of uh, uh, navigate through the site itself. And um, I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us, uh, because at some point, maybe people are going, hmm, it sounds pretty interesting. Maybe I want to check this out. Who would you say that um, should be per- perhaps, because I, I noticed that you, you just don't look for members, you look for other people, especially with the COVID-19 thing that's been going on, uh, you know, for people to check out the information or find relevant information that they could use. Who would you say that 
that someone might want to, uh, you know, become a member for this with this organization? Who who would you say that would be? Well, definitely anyone working within First Nation Health Services delivery or supporting or partnering with First Nation Health Services. Um, we have a number of partnership organizations who support. Uh, we also have a number of corporate members who are keen to look at how they respond to the TRC calls to action, specifically those around health, which is 18 to 24. So mainstream uh, corporate Canada has a role in this. The local health integration networks or regional health authorities have a role. And of course, we have a lot of interest from our partners at Indigenous Services Canada. Mm. So if you're a health director, a manager, a program director, community health rep, uh, working at a NADAP treatment centre, this is an organization that you would be interested in. Now, you just mentioned mentioned Indigenous Services Canada. So what is the relationship there with your organization? Our relationship is one that we value and look at as partnership in action. Uh, We quickly partnered with Indigenous Services Canada. They were called something else at the Mm. time, um, right at the beginning. And because they co-chaired the advisory committee that started the association, they have a rich history Mm. with us. Mm. So they will often be sought as uh, funders for projects and tools that we develop. Uh, They will support and guide in terms of any community health and wellness planning changes. Uh, We look at our partnership as an opportunity to collectively build capacity. So it's more than just a funding recipient partnership, but how do we support nations in the evolution of taking control of their health services delivery from the federal government? Hmm. Okay. Now, we've, we've mentioned the, the website a couple of times, but uh, if you're interested in checking it out, it is, it is fnhma.ca. <clears throat> and if you go there, you can, you can uh, navigate yourself through that uh, website and find out more about what we're talking about if there is interest. And, um, um, Marion, the, uh, the, the, as COVID-19 developed, um, what was the, the course of action that your organization took like many organizations thrown into this, uh, what did you start to see uh, that brought rise to the to the idea that you needed to have these um, online uh, virtual town halls so that people could gain information they were missing? Oh, thanks for that question, David. It was such an unprecarious. It was such a precarious time. March thirteenth. It just stands out in my mind Mm -hmm. when we decided to close our office um, and have people working safely from home and looking at the environment. We knew we had a lot of partners. How did we mobilize the message? How did we keep engaging the network who is now facing a pandemic uh, situation? And we turned that quickly into being a voice of communication and navigating people through resources, information that was credible, reliable, and safe. Uh, So we quickly mobilized the town halls. That's going to go until June 25th. So we're every Thursday, as you know, and Mm -hmm. thanks for the support (laughs) on um, making sure that that message gets out. 
uh, we got a public service announcement out right away to thank all of the frontline health managers, health leaders, service delivery supports in our communities. We partnered with the First Nation Information Governance Centre, the Canadian Indigenous Nurses Association, Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada, uh, the National Collaboration Centre on Indigenous Health, and then of course, Thunderbird Partnership Foundation and First Peoples Wellness Circle, who looked at the mental well-being and spiritual well-being of our nation uh we united we did first nation health united just to thank everybody Mm. we continued with those um town halls every work and then we started looking at how do we um put a support system in place where these overburdened hardworking health directors could find information and that's when InfoPoint was born. Mm. Right, InfoPoint. I'm glad you brought that up. We're going to get to that in a moment. Um, mm-hmm. Before we we do, what I what I would like to to um, uh, ask a little bit more about is, uh, as we all know, uh, everyone was scrambling. Uh, across the, the mainstream as well for uh, gaining information, trying to see what would go- happen, how this was going to roll out, what things could, could they could do in their own communities. There's some general information that applied to everyone. But as we all know, uh, many First Nations uh, and other Indigenous communities uh, are, are separate. They have different issues um, that have cropped up. And maybe that's one of the reasons why you found this necessary to hold these town halls to get that two-way information sharing going that other First Nations could uh, perhaps uh, uh, share with other people listening that might benefit them um, or to have questions put forward so that uh, someone else might be able to answer. What what were you hearing or what were you seeing that you know, for for people that are not on First Nations or may not be of First Nation ancestry, wh- what were you seeing that you think is important to to share with those people about what First Nations were dealing with that was different? Oh, there's so many things to touch upon mm. in that question, David. <laughs> I mean, in terms of addressing and shining a light on the health uh, differences between our First Nation health status and the rest of Canada's was one thing, is to bring attention back to all of the social determinants of health, overcrowdedness and Mm. housing. When a community member gets COVID, it's like throwing a match in a haystack Mm. because of all the determinants that happen in nation. And I think, you know, shining a light on that Uh, supporting and creating opportunities for the health centers who were responding and not just responding, but, you know, knocking this out of the park in terms of their pandemic plans being put into action, uh, exercising sovereignty Mm. by closing their nations. These were all messages we wanted to share with other communities who didn't have a a plan in place so that they could learn and take all of those wise practices and apply them, but make it credible and unique and, you know, put a light on how they exercise whatever that looks like for their community, you Mm -hmm. know, incorporating Mm -hmm. elders if that's the way Mm -hmm. they want to do it putting supports and tools out in the Indigenous language of their nation that had messaging to use around washing hands, 
And then bringing in all of the partners to create that support structure of information. Hey, we found a great tool and resource. Let's get it out there. Mm. Um, for health directors who had questions, this was the only place where we could gather and mimic how we gather in a community, but do it in a virtual way and be able to hold up our hands and say, well, what about this? And have the panelists answer it. I mean, we've had the senior assistant deputy minister from Indigenous mm -hmm. Services Canada on mm -hmm. ask, getting asked real questions from real health directors. And that created this forum that I hadn't seen anywhere else. Mm. And so it was so appreciative to mm. be able to create that opportunity and a safe place for that dialogue to happen. Nice. You're listening to uh, Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNT-FM or 95.7 ELMNT-FM. My guest on the show is uh, Marion uh, Crow. She is the Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association. It's a pleasure to have her on the show. And we're talking about uh, COVID-19 and, of course, about what the uh, First Nations Health Managers Association does in general. And um, they, they've had this online uh, virtual town hall that they've been holding every Thursday uh, since March and, and, and goes on, as, as Marion mentioned, until uh, June 25th, I believe you said? Yes, June 25th is when uh, we'll continue the town halls, including two. So now that we're sort of into COVID-19 for a while, things have settled down. The curve is, you know, in many First Nations and in many uh, Indigenous communities has done well in many areas. I know, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the curve has flattened. There's been no new cases in many First Nations. It seems like the the initi initiatives that were taken really helped to, to flatten that curve and, and get things under control. Well, in terms of, I mean, looking at the data supporting what constitutes uh, a positive instance and who mm. reports it is a whole different dialogue. Okay. Uh, from what we're seeing reported, we track the number of positive COVID responses daily as an organization. Great. So we'll look at what uh, Indigenous Services Canada is mm. reporting based on on-reserve mm -hmm. counts. But then we know from our partners, tribal councils and various parts of the Turtle Island here that it's off reserve uh, needs to be counted too for the clients that are going back and forth from right. our cousins and aunties sure. and homeless people that are couch surfing yep. and we're seeing the stats on the increase in terms of Indigenous Services Canada reports. I believe we were at 211 mm. uh, yesterday. Um, and so we're behind the rest of Canada in the curve. Right now we're seeing uh, some flattening and reopening in certain provinces, but the numbers are still continuing to rise a tiny bit mm. in our First Nation community. So it's, it's interesting to see how reopening is going to impact our right. nations as well. Right. Now, the other thing, of course, and you mentioned this uh, previously when you, you talked about language, you said, you know, getting some of this information out in the language appropriate to the community or the First Nation for their elders. Now, that's one thing that is a little different for many uh, uh, First Nations and Indigenous communities that have 
elders who are also knowledge keepers and those that are that speak the language. As we all know, there's very few uh, language speakers. So this is an extra burden uh, that that I think non-Indigenous people may not understand. That it's not just uh, if someone gets ill in a community that is that is a knowledge keeper or 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 someone that is um, especially knowledgeable in the language and they lose that person. That's that's a real blow to the community. It is such a hard one for a community to lose such a respected wisdom keeper, knowledge holder, sacred elder. Mm. They carry the traditions, they carry the culture, they carry the stories of that nation. And they've lived through earlier pandemics, mm. colonization, residential schools. And because of all of those external factors, we don't have as many people who have the ability to speak their own language. And so it just makes it all that much more um, important to protect those folks in our communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, now, you mentioned InfoPoint. And um, so just a little bit of information about InfoPoints, an information-sharing initiative developed by the First Nations Health Managers. COVID-19 has created challenges for First Nations Health Managers in communities across the country. These challenges have given rise to questions without a clear place to ask them. InfoPoint is a helpline where First Nations managers can call if they have questions or are searching for resources around COVID-19. So um, you launched this, uh, as you said, uh, coming out of, of uh, some of this situation that we're in. How has it been performing? InfoPoint has been a wonderful place to be able to call or email, as you said, David, um, to get a tailored package of mm. information. We knew we could do more than just provide a list of documents. That would be an easy thing mm -hmm. uh, to do. But by working directly with the caller or the person emailing, we could tailor it so that it meets their COVID-19 uh, knowledge needs. And so just taking it a step further is what we thought would be helpful and mm -hmm. provide that one-on-one, -on -one, somebody real on the other line of the phone that somebody could talk to, as opposed to just sending this, you know, uh, random question out into the internet. But if somebody wanted to call and just have an empathetic ear, we're not practitioners, we're mm -hmm. not clinicians, but we can navigate mm -hmm. uh, the information. And that's really what we've been doing. Uh, InfoPoint, it's interesting to see where we're getting pickup. Uh, we have callers from all over Canada, but a lot more from Saskatchewan and mm -hmm. Ontario, yeah. which is no surprise because we're seeing that's where the COVID-19 mm. hotspots are. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to, you know, what's going to come out of the analysis of the data mm -hmm. as we move forward, obviously respecting OCAP compliances around uh, data sharing, but to be able to say, hey, we had a lot of questions here. We need to provide a tool, a support, or put some more resources in supporting a specific area that we're seeing populate over and over mm. on the info point line 
or email questions. Right. And those uh, contact numbers are for the the phone is 1-855-446-2719. And uh, the email is infopoint at fnhma.ca. And uh, once again, uh, there's uh, you can go to the InfoPoint. Uh, uh, there's an InfoPoint website directly, or is well, it within the? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries, David. What we're doing is uh, we have the phone number out, we have the email out. Mm-hmm. We've also partnered with IndigenousHealthToday.ca, mm. and uh, right. they've created a space on their website for people who are looking for untailored um, instances on COVID-19 information. Mm-hmm. You can check that website out, and they're such a wonderful support to FNHMA and uh, find more resources there. Thanks for clarifying that. I was looking at that and was going, oh, that doesn't sound like it's the right website for InfoPoint, but <laughs> thanks for clarifying that. So if, so if people go to uh, the uh, ihtoday.ca website, that's where you, and it also ties in with, with the, um, uh, the virtual meetings that you've been holding, and, uh, and the past ones are, are there for people to go in and view as well. That's correct. Uh, Marion, looking to the future, we're getting close to the end of our, our time, and it's been a pleasure having you here with us and, and appreciate everything that you've been sharing about this. Uh, as you look to the future, what do you think the, um, the benefits are uh, coming out of this, this you know, sad situation that we've been put in will be uh, uh, for the future of, of what your organization is, is doing? Oh, that's a really, um, I appreciate that question. There's a lot to answer in that one question. In terms of what you're going to look to see out of FNHMA, I mean, we're going to continue to build up uh, information, resources, training, support, tools uh, for First Nation health managers and directors. We'll continue to establish more relationships uh, with outside organizations. We'll continue to uh, be a moccasin telegraph that's fierce, obviously. Uh, and we'll do it under the auspice of sharing our inherent knowledge and celebrating management principles as we deliver health services and prepare people for taking over the destiny of their own health journeys within their nations. We made an announcement today. If you were tuned in to the FNHMA virtual town hall, uh, you will know that FNHMA is going to celebrate and share our inherent knowledge. Thank all of the tireless, hard-working frontline health directors, managers, service providers in a really big way. In November of this year, in replacement of our annual gathering, we're going to host a one-day virtual celebration. So stay Mm. tuned for the specific date, but we look forward to everybody tuning in and continuing to lift up our front lines. All right, that sounds great. That's wonderful. And and who better to celebrate at this point in time than our, our frontline people that are working so hard uh, during this whole pandemic? 
Absolutely. I really appreciate you sharing with the Element listeners the story of First Nations Health Managers Association. Yeah, our, our pleasure. Now, Marion, before we go, there's one other thing uh, that is going to be that's it's coming up later in the year, providing everything is, is somewhat normalized. I guess you have a conference, I believe, uh, for is it September or, or sometime later in the year? Well, David, that's going to be the replaced virtual celebration. Okay. Oh, Our okay. national annual conference is uh, was scheduled for November right. 3 to 5 in Victoria. Right. Yes. And we will knock it out of the park <laughs> in an online format and continue to recognize all of our members and partners just in a virtual uh, platform this year and not for three days but stay tuned <laughs> that's great well once it's <laughs> once it's online it's up forever so it's even more than three days right so that's right <laughs> Marion. it's been a pleasure having you on the show and we really appreciate you taking the time to do so i'm sure you're very busy with with all kinds of things uh that you're involved with right across the country so Nyawa miigwech, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, David. Hi, hi. Okay, take care. All right, take care, David. Bye-bye. Bye. That is Marion Crow. She is the Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association, and it's been a pleasure having her on the show. And uh, we want to let you know that uh, we'll be right back after this message with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7, E-L-M-N-T-F-M. Listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. It is a pleasure to have uh, two people from Western University with us. We have Associate Professor of Sociology, Kate Choi, as well as Patrick Denise, and he is also an Associate Professor of Sociology at Western University. It's a pleasure to have them both here, and welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us uh, on your show. We're both really happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you both here. And uh, an interesting topic that we will be looking at, uh, I guess based on uh, an article that you had written uh, in the conversation that uh, talks about uh, how Canada may or may not be different in terms of the U.S. in terms of looking at uh, uh, marginalized uh, 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 people uh, during this COVID-19 situation that we have in terms of uh, black or immigrant um, a, a, a populations that could be affected by uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And um, it's interesting to note how the two countries look at these things differently and how we interpret them just from generalities. And what I mean by that is, yes, we we do have a, a nationalized health uh, 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 um, uh, care, uh, which is different from the United States. And so we would think that that would compensate for some things. But I, I really found it interesting how the two of you looked at uh, or and found the cracks that were sort of showing up within uh, the the populations and what wasn't being looked at. Um, which one of you would like to sort of set this up for us? I, I can. Sure. Um, and what what had happened um, is 
from the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic is that we, we had seen a lot of news coverage mm-hmm. coming from the U.S. that showed that African-Americans and immigrant groups like Hispanics, Hispanics were being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 mm-hmm. in the United States. And we wondered whether or not this was also the case in Canada. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Public Health Agency of Canada doesn't collect data about the race of individual 19 uh, individual COVID-19 patients. Therefore, understanding what communities have been bearing the brunt of the pandemic in Canada required that we make creative use of existing data. So what we did in our study is that we linked census files with data on COVID-19 infection and death counts in health regions to examine the association between the racial, socioeconomic, and demographic composition of health regions and COVID-19 infection and death rates in these areas. And what we found was that health regions with higher shares of black and immigrant residents in Canada were in fact disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, much in the same manner as the United States. Mm. Uh, Patrick, to what degree were you finding there was a difference there? And, and what I mean by that is uh, in the numbers within Canada and the, and the groups that you were looking at, to that between the regular population or the, the you know, the other population within Canada. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's important to note that, again, we're sort of relying on aggregated data. So mm. we can't say too much about, uh, like Kate mentioned, uh, whether or not Black or immigrant individuals are more likely Um, to be affected by the COVID-19. But we were surprised um, to find that uh, communities um, with higher shares of Black residents and higher shares um, of immigrants uh, were uh, also seeing higher rates of COVID-19 infections um, and deaths. So to put that a little more concretely, um, we found, for instance, that a one percentage point increase in the share of Black residents in a health region was associated with a doubling of coronavirus infection rates. Hmm. And 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 where specifically were you were you seeing these? You, you, there's a number of cities across Canada where you pointed out. Uh, so can can you talk about that first? And 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 then I, you know I found it really also interesting about how this links to something that I, I guess people may not think of. And and in the 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 gathering uh, of information for COVID nineteen and uh, looking at vulnerable populations, these were these were eliminated uh, in this in this area, and that was the migrant workers as well. Yeah. So one thing we were sort of surprised by was um, so we certainly found higher COVID nineteen rates in larger cities. Um, and densely populated places. Mm. Um, Montreal, uh, Toronto uh, stand out uh, in particular. But we also found um, higher rates of COVID-19 infections and deaths and uh, this correlation or this association um, between COVID-19 and higher uh, densities of Black and immigrant communities uh, in less densely populated places too. Um, places uh, in and around Calgary, for instance, uh, or places in the sort of oil sands Mm. um, of Alberta. So what was interesting to us was that this wasn't just a story um, about uh, COVID-19 
in highly um, populated uh, areas in Canada, right. but also a story about um, this relationship between uh, where Black and immigrant populations tend to live uh, and where COVID-19 uh, was playing out. Yeah. I don't know if Kate has more to add there. Yeah, Kate, uh, in, in terms of that, in terms of looking at these, these non-populated or, or densely populated areas and getting into uh, where migrant workers uh, would be going to to help, uh, such as the oil sands, uh, and, and that also brings in to something I remember hearing uh, in the news a little while ago, um, because of the the uh, proximity and the mixing, I guess, of people uh, with migrant workers. Uh, and I'm not specifically pointing them out. I'm just saying in general, this was happening. Um, but there's also the the indigenous communities that are in those areas as well. And I remember, uh, you know, you have people that are traveling from First Nation communities to go and work in these areas like the oil sands as well and back then to their community. Yes. So there um, there's the issue of infection that is happening because uh, of, of exposure to different uh, of different individuals coming from the cities into these areas. But um, these patterns are also suggestive of the, the kind of environments where uh, disadvantaged populations like temporary migrant workers uh, reside. Like, for example, we know that they live in extremely uh, crowded households uh, um, and they tend to live in communal quarters, for example, which makes it very difficult for these individuals to be able to phys- physically dis- distance from one another. And that potentially contributes to the spread of the virus in these uh, communities. If, if it is in fact the case that there is exposure, then uh, then it ultimately has an impact on uh, because of the way that the COVID-19 pandemic is being spread across communities and across people. It has implications for how widely spread the COVID-19 pandemic is within these particular communities. Mm-hmm. So uh, as you started to gather this information, was there anything that jumped out at you that, that you were surprised to see or you weren't expecting to see? So in the very beginning, when we started um, making the analysis, it was not very clear to us whether or not Canada would also, we would see the same pattern of racial and ethnic disparities that we saw in the U.S. in Canada in large part because there is universal healthcare uh, insurance coverage in Canada. We, do, we expect not to see as wide of a health inequality in Canada as we do in the U- United States. But the degree of similarity in the fact that black and immigrant communities were disproportionately affected by COVID-19, that was uh, a, 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 a surprising finding in itself. Um, It was also like Patrick mentioned earlier, when we were predicting the COVID-19 hotspots, there were several uh, potential hotspots that that was widely populated by black and immigrant communities that we did not necessarily expect that were outside of the metropolitan areas that has been discussed so much in in the particular literature. we can kind of see that even outside of big metropolitan areas like Toronto or Montreal, places where there are large concentrations of immigrant and black populations, 
those areas are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Those were some of the surprising findings mm. from our study. And and um, this is this is uh, a part of what you found as well that uh, that through this through these this. Uh, the policies that have been put out in terms of the government uh, ad- adopting this multiculturalism policy, then the racial discrimination uh, and, and also these these racial minorities, uh, in, in many ways, have not been uh, looked at in terms of their their specific vulnerability within this COVID nineteen situation. Yeah, yes. I definitely think that's sort of reflected by the fact that we don't right now. Um, have good data about the demographic or specifically the racial or ethnic background of COVID-19 patients. So I think that a part of our um, study, sort of an important part of our study, is in acknowledging um, that certain communities, and particularly Black and immigrant Canadians, um, or at least the communities in which they live, may be especially vulnerable to the pandemic. I think that's an important acknowledgement Mm -hmm. that could lead um, to sort of real action, right? Um, In terms of sort of making the case um, for the collection of more complete, more detailed, perhaps even individual level data um, on COVID-19 patients and then reporting rates uh, among specific subgroups so that we have an idea or a better idea of these disparities. Yeah, because it doesn't seem like right now uh, there, there is... Uh, I, I don't think maybe you're able to answer this a little better for for me uh, and the listeners that there is a clear understanding of is it just simply the fact that that uh, these people uh, either minorities uh, immigrant workers are in the the crowded situations that they find themselves in that is the reason for the uh, the spread of the virus, uh, which seems to make sense, uh, or are are particular people more vulnerable to the uh, to the virus itself? And I think that's the information that is missing. Is that correct? I think you're right, and I think uh, you know if sort of the first phase of our study was to sort of document um, these broader patterns, mm. then you know Kate and I and others involved in the project have certainly been talking about. Um, in the next stage to dig a little deeper and try and understand why these patterns exist. Um, is it, as you know, um, due to the sort of density um, and population size of the places in which people live or are there other factors as well? Um, I do think that some of this better, more detailed um, data collection is starting to happen. So for instance, um, Statistics Canada recently began uh, a crowdsourcing campaign to collect finer mm. grain data. Um, and cities like Toronto have recently committed um, to collecting information uh, by racial and ethnic group as well. Mm. So I think we're we're starting to see and be in a position to say more about why these disparities exist. But I certainly agree that that's sort of a next step in the analysis. Yeah, there's a few other questions that come to mind in thinking about that. Uh, We'll be right back after this message with more right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. 
but I just want to jump in and, and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And I'd like to just tell you also that we are speaking with two people from Western University. We have with us Kate Choi. She is an associate professor with sociology, as is Patrick Denise, and he is an associate professor of sociology as well with Western University. It's a pleasure to have them both here. And we're talking about uh, an article they wrote uh, having to do with uh, data linking race and health uh, predicts to, to uh, with um, COVID-19 hotspots in, throughout Canada. And uh, they, they've come up with a very interesting article, um, you know, sort of shining the light on uh, similarities or differences within Canada and the United States. And, and just, you know, making us more familiar with even the fact that uh, we think that in Canada we have this universal health care system, um, that that might, uh, might, might change things because of our multiculturalism policies and an approach that we have. Uh, we've sort of omitted or, or uh, negated to look at some of the other uh, things that, that are affecting this COVID-19 situation, such as race, such as uh, higher concentrated areas where, where uh, specific populations are, are gathering and seeing a spike in the number of cases in COVID-19. Uh, specifically, uh, they've talked about the black population in certain areas in, within Canada where they're, they're uh, concentrated in a higher population, migrant workers. Um, uh, and this, uh, of course, spills over to Indigenous communities as well in terms of, as we were just talking about with the oil sands and pe- places where out west you would have uh, Indigenous populations living outside of the larger metropolitan areas but where you have populations mixing and working together, uh, as pointed out uh, by both uh, Patrick and and, uh, Kate, uh, that they are living in these communal areas and working in these communal situations. Um, You know, I'm glad to hear you say that Statistics Canada is starting to look at this now and and sort of gather some of that. Um, From the findings that you have from your preliminary study that you did, um, are you looking at uh, potentially sharing any of that, or have you shared that with with uh, government officials at all? We have shared uh, our our findings mm-hmm. uh, in our preprint uh, with uh, Statistics Canada, mm-hmm. and um, they have looked at uh, the potential to actually use more aggregate data uh, to as they progress in their data collection efforts. So, um, I think different academics. Um, that are interested in race collect uh, collecting racial data are in discussions with various uh, government officials in order to facilitate the collection of of data so that we can have a better understanding of the vulnerable populations in Canada. Right. Um, and and with that, the fact that we, we weren't looking at this uh, to the extent that you started to do with your with your study. Um, what do you think this this tells us that we are missing? I mean, as as a as a population, just uh, you know, why is this why is this important that we do look at this? Well, I think you know if we if we sort of close our eyes to the racial disparities, that doesn't eliminate them, right? Mm. It just sort of eliminates. Um, our ways to address it. So our argument here is that we need to collect data. We need to document disparities. 
um, we need to address social problems by designing evidence-based policies that get at the social causes uh, generating these inequalities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we were sort of talking um, amongst uh, the authors about uh, sort of the government of Ontario's uh, COVID-19 action plan. Mm. I mean, I think there's a lot to like about how it specifies its priorities and concrete actions. Um, for instance, the plan does outline um, several particularly vulnerable groups like indigenous peoples uh, and the homeless. Mm. Um, but our findings suggest that that list is incomplete. Mm. Um, and then at that, sorry, and that uh, black and immigrant can- uh, Canadians may also need um, targeted policies as we respond uh, to this pandemic together. Um, so, so yeah, I think our argument is that more data helps us better understand the disparities. Uh, we can't address a disparity if we don't know uh, that it's there. Right. That makes, of course, all the sense in the world. And I think the one thing that that this COVID-19 pandemic has has shown us is that uh, we are all connected, regardless of, of who we are, uh, race or, or location. It's, it's spread uh, far and wide, and it, it, it isn't uh, selective. It, uh, it will go to uh, whoever is the, the closest host that it can uh, it can uh, populate in. Um, so, uh, Kate, what what do you think that um, by adding this this into the mix, it will help in in the future with? I think um, in Canada, often there is this myth that because it's a multi- multicultural uh, society, there isn't really uh, racial or ethnic discrimination, or that the magnitude of racial and ethnic inequality in different dimensions of social life does not exist Mm. and that all of these things are the problems in the U.S. But what our study in conjunction with other studies that have documented patterns of racial and ethnic disparities do show is that minority populations, um, indigenous populations are in fact a disadvantaged group and that uh, more government policies as well as social efforts have to be made to bridge the gap across these different populations. So I think it's important to acknowledge the existence of these things, collect the relevant data, do the analysis, and design evidence-based policies that can help the vulnerable populations who are often racial minorities in Canada. I guess it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess with with the approach of a multiculturalism a sort of I- ideal m- moving forward, the idea is that we try to eliminate that uh, that racial discrimination by by pointing out specific uh, people of of race and and those kind of things to to try to make it homogenized. But I guess in this situation, what we're finding is that we we do need to look at the specifics in order to get all the information we can. Uh, to 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 analyze and and uh, work towards a, a a resolution of this this uh, this pandemic, and it, that would help, of course, uh, moving forward. I think that's right. I think this ideal of multiculturalism can coexist um, and be in parallel to um, taking seriously uh, the efforts to understand, document, and dig into. Uh, what are, you know, existing and lingering uh, disparities between groups. I think those two things can exist, Mm. uh, can coexist together. 
And did you guys find any issues with that in terms of trying to access information uh, so that you could get a, a true sense of what was happening? So um, in Canada, often racial and ethnic uh, data, um, whether it's related to the COVID-19 or in other forms of data are not as readily available mm -hmm. in as it is in countries like the US or the United Kingdom overall. So uh, in many countries, um, race data at the individual level for COVID-19, as Patrick stated earlier, have been collected. These are not being collected except in certain places like Toronto mm. and potentially Manitoba and, and so forth. So um, getting access to information about racial and ethnic disparities is in fact difficult mm. within the Canadian setting. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I guess, like I said, uh, just because normally we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to look at, at that information because we want to respect people's privacy, et cetera, et cetera. But in this situation, it, it's a handicap. Collecting information about racial and ethnic identification among different individuals, especially when that data is de-identified, can help us identify patterns of inequality mm. um, and, and, and to be able to address that pattern of inequality. And going back to your point about multiculturalism, what we want is we want to respect differences by choice but we want to eliminate differences that exist because despite the fact that people want to not have a difference, there are barriers that create that particular difference. Mm. So collecting racial and ethnic data will help uh, allow uh, and contribute towards the elimination of barriers mm. that prevent individuals of, who are racial minorities of in, or indigenous populations from attaining an equality that they desire. Mm. Right. Okay, uh, listen, we're getting close to the end of our time. Ha is there anything we haven't touched on that either of you think is important to mention about this? I think we've sort of covered it. I think I would just reiterate again that um, understanding, documenting, um, being aware of uh, the disparities that exist between groups um, is not antithetical to either the ideals of multiculturalism or protecting uh, people's privacy. I think there are ways of um, collecting data. There are ways of making that data available, perhaps at an aggregated level, um, that allow policymakers, researchers, um, and the public to be aware of the disparities that exist um, and design policies mm. more effectively around that for richer information. Okay, great. And Kate, last word to you. Um, I, I would like to echo uh, Patrick's point about the importance of collecting racial and ethnic uh, disparities data, particularly in things like COVID-19 to, um, to prevent the spread of the mm. um, COVID-19 pandemic. Right, great. Okay, well, Kate and Patrick, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you. We thank you for your time and uh, coming on the show and telling us about this uh, very interesting uh, information. Thank, thank you very you. much. Uh, thank you very much. And that uh, they are the voices of Kate Choi and Patrick Denise. They are both associate professors in sociology at Western University. It's been a pleasure speaking with them right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. And that is our show for today. Thank you, our listeners, for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow with more. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. 
Element FM.